0: You are listening to the award winning The Young Jerks with Mike Crawford.
1: Mike Crawford, Young Jerks. Very happy tonight. We got a big uh, cannabis summit, as we're calling it. It's lots going on right now. I'm trying to uh, do everything at once, always on the show and off the show. But uh, I'm really happy. I'm going to leave it to not saying too much to kick off the show. I just want to get these guests up. We only have like an hour. Uh, I don't even know where to start. I I should just bring them all up all at once. And then we'll have them introduce themselves. Because we have uh, a show tonight that I think is going to represent everything in cannabis that's important for the stakeholders. I always look at the stakeholders. And I think there's three groups. And the three guests I think are going to represent them well. One is the workers, cannabis workers right now. Also, we're looking at social equity, obviously, which is a big thing. And then another one I think that gets overlooked an awful lot, as well as the workers, is consumers and patients. So we're going to bring up all three guests right now. They can introduce themselves. I guess, who wants to go first? I want to, I want to kick it off with uh, each one of you, just describing who you are and what you think is really important right now. In the conversation around cannabis, and and in your area, what you kind of focus on? Who wants to go first? Who's ready? Look, they're all so polite. We're all ready. Let's let 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 Aiden go go
0: first because I think Shalene and I are just meeting Aiden for the first time. Shalene and I know each other. We know you, Mike, but we—I've never met Aiden, so I'd love to hear who he is. Which is
1: going to be awesome. This is going to be a good show because I'm really excited about uh, all three of you being here together and bringing you all together. So yeah, let's start with ladies first. Chalene Title, I know she's always prepared and ready to go. Let's bring Chalene Title.
2: We'll save Aiden for last, and best for last. Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me on the Cannabis Summit. My name is Chalene Title. I currently run the nonprofit think tank Parabola Center, which is focused on social equity as well as small businesses. Um, but we care about consumers and workers as well. I think honestly, uh, those those four interests overlap about 90%, you know, and I think we have big tobacco and Amazon and MSOs, you know, running the show right now. And that is who we do not represent, who we do not take money from. And really, I started Parabola Center because I was seeing, especially when we talk about federal policy, that we don't have enough representation for our interests, which I think is really the general population's interests. Um, And then briefly my background, Uh, I'm a drug policy activist and attorney. Um, Going back about 20 years, I started with Students for sensible Drug Policy. When I moved to Massachusetts, I met Mike, um, I met Chris, a lot of uh, local activists. And um, I was an entrepreneur, I started THC Staffing Group, um, which is a diversity and inclusion focused recruiting firm. And I served as a regulator here in Massachusetts from 2017 through 2020.
1: Cannabis Control Commissioner. And that's a good introduction of who you are. What, what, What do you think is really important right now to kind of highlight on this show, coming from social justice and the cannabis industry? I think you mentioned MSOs. I know you would probably want to mention tobacco. What, what do you think, what, what's like really important right now that you want to make sure that you're talking about tonight?
2: I think paying attention to federal policy is really important, even though it doesn't, it's not moving very fast and you know, local and state is what is in front of us and what we can influence. Um, There are a lot of invisible forces in D.C., definitely tobacco. Thank you for inviting me to highlight that because that's my favorite topic. But also MSOs, you know, certainly anti-worker forces. And Congress is going to listen to them if they don't hear any other voices, because they're certainly pretending to represent social equity and, um, you know, the general population and they don't. So that's what we should be paying attention to right now.
1: Awesome. And let's go to Chris Goldstein. He's, uh, I always say Chris Goldstein, Philly normal, because he's always a rep in Philly normal. I've known this guy forever. I've known Shalene quite a long time as well. Uh, Chris probably even longer. You're probably one of the first people ever to put me on a show on, on a podcast, huh. the normal podcast like oh yeah years ago. Yeah. <laughs> that
0: was a long, It was a long time ago. That was a long, no. that was awesome though. We were so yeah. ahead of the curve. That was 2005. We were Normal had a podcast the first year that iTunes allowed podcasts in the iTunes music store. And it blew up. I mean we it were um, totally uh, outclassing all the government we were in the government and organizations category, which is great. Because we beat the National Park Service and then Senator Hillary Clinton, you know, all all we were beating everybody the the Bush White House, so it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, and we had you on the show, and we had you know, we had Chalene on the show then. We had everybody from SSDP on the show then. Um, but yeah, back then I worked at Normal as a podcaster, which is kind of crazy in two thousand five, two thousand seven. And then I helped uh, put together the Normal conferences, which is kind of crazy too. There used to be like one marijuana conference in America. And it was a normal conference and it was a lot of fun. And now marijuana conferences are a totally different field. It's, it's wild. But yeah, um, then, you know, now uh, I moved uh, from New Mexico back here to the East Coast, um, you know, uh, way back when, almost uh, 11 years ago. And I started up some normal chapters in Philadelphia, New Jersey, executive director of New Jersey Normal. Now, today, I'm a regional director. I sort of put that together. I help the normal chapters out in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. <laughs> Um, so I'm often testifying before the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission, which is a, a three-year-old entity now. And um, again, as Shaleen said, federal policy. I mean, I'm a, a longtime fan and voter of Cory Booker. He has been uh, really instrumental in pushing federal policy and sort of uh, putting up a firewall to some bad policy that might have went through. And um, I'm really glad to be working with his office for many years. And um, and now federal policy is really an important thing. I think Shaleen pointed that out. Um, too few people are talking about it. But... Um, it's one of those weird things that could kind of almost happen every day, so you really have to work on it. Uh, but the other thing I worked on, you mentioned prices and, and, you know, what's important to pay attention to. Here in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, when we talk about the MSOs, they dominate the market. In Pennsylvania, the MSOs own every single permit. In New Jersey, when we launched adult use uh, earlier this year, they owned every permit. They were guaranteed this sort of first-to-market access. Um, So that's what we're really battling here in New Jersey, along with price controls. Earlier this year, I filed an official price gouging complaint with the attorney general's office uh, against Cureleaf, something that's really ongoing. Um, And what's funny is when I was talking about price gouging in January, it was weird. Everybody's like, price gouging. And now it's like part of the political language. Like Everybody's talking about corporate price gouging. But you can really see it in marijuana. Corporate medical cannabis is probably the worst, best example of price gouging in America. And if we can find a fix for this in marijuana, we might be able to find a fix for it in other sectors where politicians are talking us up to. So that's what I'm working on. And that's what I hope to affect
1: these days. I feel like having you on the uh, you know, back just hammering it on Twitter is such a benefit <laughs> to us. Like I, I've been saying price gouging forever. And once I started seeing you going off on it, I was like, something's going to happen now, Chris. Chris is because you're relentless. I love it. Uh, you were also you know, part of Decrim in Philadelphia. You're someone like myself that has been arrested for cannabis. I didn't, you know, it, mine wasn't part of a cause. It was just an accidental arrest. Chris <laughs> was actually putting it on the line for the cause and got arrested for it. Uh, so, you know, big props to Chris. Better, I have a federal well. record.
0: Yeah. So what Mike yeah. said, you know, I ended up, I, I'm one of those people, when they talk about President Biden offering the pardons, I have a federal record for marijuana possession, literally like a joint that was like half the size of this pen. And um, it was 0.4 grams. But when we talk about the promises of this administration, I voted for this president. I hope that I would have a pardon by now. And it hasn't happened. And there's thousands of people out there like me. So it's one of those things that I also highlight too when I talk to federal officials.
1: Awesome. And my friend, he's been uh, someone that I talk to often He's, he's an awesome person uh really happy to have him on the show i've been wanting you on that like this is funny because Shalene is a regular she's been on the show a lot chris has been on the show aiden is somebody i've wanted on the show forever and i'm really excited to have him on the show tonight he's a ufcw uh what do you call yourself organizer the director say what your title is tell us who you are aiden
3: uh, officially, I'm the uh, uh, organizing director for UFCW Local 1445, but at the end of the day, um, I'm just a union organizer who uh, wants to uh, help cannabis workers. Um, I came out of the industry out west in Seattle, and I spent some time organizing cannabis workers across the country. Uh, Chris, uh, to your point, spent a fair amount of time in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, you're absolutely right about the dominance of the MSOs in that market, and i um, You know, it's pretty much the same story everywhere you go of uh, monopolization and consolidation of the industry. And very rarely are workers given a fair share or really any seat at the table. And, you know, this is obviously a workers rights issue. And I think, it you know, there's clear roll ins to jobs and the overall health of the economy as far as making sure that these cannabis jobs are good union, family and community sustaining jobs rather than, you know, basic minimum wage jobs that end up being an overall uh, drag on the uh, social safety net. Um, but it also rolls into very serious social equity and uh, consumer rights issues. I mean, Um, anyone who runs a grow can tell you that if the morale at the grow is poor, if the workers are being mistreated, if they're not being compensated fairly, um, that is going to have an effect on the medicine and that is going to have an effect on, uh, on the, on the public's health as a whole. And, you know, as, as far as social equity, I think we, we got to remember that a lot of these workers are coming from very vulnerable communities. Where there's been a history of oppression, um, and these are folks without a lot of resources who see the cannabis industry as an opportunity to grow, and quite frankly, they're being taken advantage of, and that's where the union steps in as a way to help workers organize um, and uh, and fight back against these kind of things.
1: Thank you, Aiden. Um, what do you like? I know you've worked on a lot of campaigns. We even did some work together with New England Treatment Access. What what are the things that people need to know right now about how to support workers and what's big right now?
3: Well, um, you know, I think in New England and specifically in Mass, there's a, there's a couple of things coming up that have me quite concerned. You know, I think even during the heyday of adult use in Massachusetts, right, when Massachusetts was the only adult use state on the East Coast, Netta Brookline was seeing 3,000 people a day and you were getting 4,000 a pound wholesale for really poor quality cannabis, um, the workers still weren't getting a fair share. Um, and, you know, I think that's about to get worse because we're, we're you know, it's a mature market now. It's built out. And if anything, we're going to see a drop in the in the wholesale price uh, going forward. We're already starting to see it. You know whether it clears fifteen hundred thousand dollars a pound, if it hits five hundred dollars a pound, like Michigan. Um, what I what I'd like folks out there in the community to be aware of is that you know yes, price gouging is certainly an issue in cannabis, Chris. And to, to your point, absolutely. I saw it in Illinois when they first legalized, when every single MSO was selling an eighth. For the exact same price across the board. And the consumers are gonna be happy to see the dropping, um, you know, that the price drop and to be able to buy cannabis for a reasonable amount. But with, you know, as the margins get thinner, and especially with these big MSOs here in Massachusetts, you know, I think a lot of them are not passing the savings on to the consumers. They're still trying to keep prices as high as possible at the dispensaries. But even when that eventually starts happening and, you know, you can get an eighth in Massachusetts for the same price as you can in Maine or a more reasonably priced adult use state, um, a lot of that is coming out of the workers, Right. I mean, if these a lot of these companies, they're seeing declining profits and they're forced with the choice to either take a haircut themselves or give it to the workers. They're going to give it to the workers. Right. And you're going to see things across the industry in Massachusetts. You'll hear about workers having their 401ks taken away, their employee discount taken away, um, you know, their health care plan being changed up. I mean, this is exactly what we saw in Michigan when you know a year ago this time it was a healthy twenty-five hundred, three thousand dollars a pound, and then it quickly went to five hundred, and you know, you you heard about whole companies that were removing healthcare access for their employees. So, as the market continues to, as prices continue to drop, and as the market continues to mature here, I think that's something that patients and consumers and activists should keep an eye out that the fifteen dollar eighth at your dispensary. Um, that might mean that uh, the workers at that grow uh, lost their employee discount.
1: And that's seems like it's finally actually coming to Massachusetts. Like we're starting to see price drops. I'm expecting a lot more with the number of grows coming online, um, which brings me to something Shalene. you mentioned you want to talk about, and I think it's a big topic is the ship act. Like, because that affects the growers. It's going to help some grow. some, because some of my friends, they've, you know, opened up and, and they're having issues. Their wholesale price has already dropped, but the the price at the store is really hasn't dropped as much. Um, and some of the cultivators definitely would like to sell directly to the consumer, but it's also going to hurt some of the workers. Tell us about the SHIP Act, Chalene, and, and your thoughts on that, and we can do a roundtable on, on the SHIP Act, I guess, the national policy.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, this concept of small businesses being able to directly ship their products to consumers um, is lifted from advantages that small uh, wineries and breweries have, craft producers. And uh, I think there's there's the Massachusetts question, the national question, and then short term and long term. So just breaking it down a bit, the SHIP Act is a federal bill that was introduced last week by Rep Huffman in California. And uh, it takes place, it triggers upon legalization. So once cannabis gets descheduled, which is a big concern for anti monopolists because if you deschedule cannabis without any protections for small businesses and then the amazons and big tobaccos of the world come in immediately that means it's hard to see how any small business would survive it's even hard to see how msos would survive frankly because they're technically mid-sized businesses relatively so the ship act would immediately at that point kick in and allow small craft businesses based on size, um, producers and cultivators to ship directly to consumers. So um, it raises some questions about uh, if kids open the packages, if there's edibles, um, these kinds of things that can be addressed by regulation, but they have been for wine. They're certainly addressable. Um, The more important thing, the reason why Parabola Center has waited until now to endorse a federal bill, the SHIP Act is the first federal bill we've endorsed, is because of the way it was developed. I think that's just important as the substance. So it was actually craft growers who got together from across the nation and developed this bill because they were sick of seeing, frankly, all of this corporate bullshit over and over and just like giving them scraps, you know, in one paragraph. Whereas this is like this simple, elegant bill that just has this one provision. And so um, I think you can take a lot from that concept. Uh, If you look at Massachusetts, we have, as most people know, delivery exclusivity. So for the first three years, only social equity businesses can uh, participate in delivery. We're in that three-year period now. Um, That also was developed by social equity businesses. And so the idea that you can have a specific group that everyone wants to uplift and support, have a specific type of benefit is something that we should really explore. And imagine if you layered something like like the SHIP Act with a state level social equity program potentially, or something for retailers or delivery for you're then covering the whole supply chain. Uh, It's really exciting. Um, The last thing I want to say on that is if you're in Massachusetts, I just want to flag for you, before I left the commission, we created an exclusive right for social equity micro-businesses to directly deliver their product to consumers. So an example, actually the only example I know of, is Freshly Baked in Massachusetts. They're a minority-owned, veteran-owned micro-business. They make these great gummies. Um, And they can manufacture them and deliver them in a vehicle directly to consumers. They're the only ones who can do that. Um, So that's really exciting. And I hope people look into the SHIP Act. If you like it, talk to your representative. And then also think about similar um, innovative, you know, out-of-the-box type of policies. Because it doesn't have to just all be, you know, deschedule and open retail stores and that's it. You know, that's not the only way that we can have a market.
1: Perfect. And uh, who wants to go next? Aiden, I see, or Chris Goldstein? Let's go to Chris well, first. Well,
0: you know, you mentioned, I, I, you know, since Shaleen and Aiden are here. I think that, you know, we're talking about prices and we're talking about getting craft cannabis out as one of those ways that we can get the price down. You know, in New Jersey right now, I do a survey of the adult use in the medical market here every week. And the price has actually gone up. When they launched adult use in April, you could get an eighth for $45, which is still in outrageous. I mean, we're talking like 1994 in college level prices. So dorms, $45 an eighth is expensive. Now it's $60 an eighth, $70 an eighth, $75 an eighth. This is unaffordable. I'm a writer. I can't, I, I have to be honest with you. I haven't been able to purchase adult use cannabis in New Jersey yet because I simply can't afford it. Um, when you, Aiden, when you talk about the price coming down and Chalene as a regulator, who's seen this, you're talking about infecting workers and everything like that. But really, if the prices are so hyperinflated at the retail and wholesale level, this is an adjustment. Companies know it. I mean, I filed a price gouging complaint because Cureleaf in New Jersey, the lowest price medical marijuana ounce they sell is $200. In the adult use, the lowest price ounce they sell is 480 Right. In Maine, the Cureleaf in Ellsworth sells an ounce for $60. I've been to both places. They don't seem very heavy in employees. They don't seem like the employees are getting fired in Maine. Leaf is undercutting the Maine market on one hand and price gouging in New Jersey on the other hand. That's what I see the problem with MSOs. They're running rings around state regulators because they're national companies and state regulators have to focus narrowly on their own state regulation.
1: And And what you're saying, Chris, is exactly what happened in massachusetts Well, we thought the prices were, were high and then they went higher for years 2016 till now we're finally getting a break like well
0: and you so know i also have to point out that, that was six. well we're talking about flour too i mean yeah. there's a whole other range of products yeah. that have gotten expensive and those are the vape carts and stuff like that too which are in new jersey um lightly regulated in my opinion um but so for both of you from chalene you've seen this as the state regulatory level Like, as the prices come down, do businesses go out of business? Do the MSOs leave? I haven't seen that. I mean, in fact, in Maine, I've seen the MSOs move in as the prices go down.
3: I mean, for what we saw in Michigan, when the price collapses, it's the little folks who go under, right? Because they're not nearly as well capitalized. They can't afford to operate at a loss for a couple of years, and they're dependent on a limited number of markets.
0: But that, that's because they have little folks there. I'm saying here, we don't have any little folks, okay? There are no little folks in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. So That's correct. Market, it's- if we see a market adjustment, if the price goes down, I, I don't expect Cureleaf and ColumbiaCare to start firing employees. But what's funny is that they threatened to do that earlier this year. When the CRC said that they were going to delay their licenses, Columbia caring and for like, oh, my God, we're firing everybody. Everybody's gone. Just show them the door. They're out. And they got their license. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask both of you about, which has become a contentious thing around here, is labor peace agreements. So regulators and in, in statute and regulations, they've required that dispensaries have labor peace agreements with unions. And very few unions will work with cannabis dispensaries. In fact, your union, UFCW, is one of the few that does. But a labor peace agreement means that the employees can't ever pick it out front. They can't ever make a show if they have a labor problem. And from what I've seen, it's not a very good job working for these places. Like you said, you get like 15 bucks an hour. You get minimum wage to do a lot. It's like basic retail. You get a lot of responsibility for a little bit of money. And if the company has any financial problems, you're the first one to lose some benefits. So I I don't know. Are labor peace agreements a good idea from a regulatory and a union standpoint? I feel like labor peace agreements are limiting workers from getting what they need in cannabis dispensaries right now. And they're required. So, like, you can't work with a union. You can't have a union unless they have a labor peace agreement that says you won't pick it out in front of the place which seems right. to it really it really hamstrings union members.
1: We we got two questions though, from Chris Goldstein. This is funny because this was like the next step, actually, is to open it up and have you guys ask questions. And Chris has already got two in. So this is perfect. Uh, I guess let's go to the labor peace agreements to both of you first. And then we'll talk about the other part of the question he had. Aiden, sure. you go first. You're the labor guy.
3: Yeah. So just a review for those who don't know, a labor peace agreement is an attestation by an employer that they will respect the rights of organized. And in return for this, as long as the labor peace agreement is being upheld, the union and the workers give up the ability to strike, picket, boycott or engage in acts of direct industrial, uh, you know, direct industrial democracy, so to speak. Right now, um, it's you can think of it basically sort of like a mutual disarmament. And the reason why it's important in cannabis, you don't have to look much farther than here in Massachusetts, where there's no labor peace agreements and the companies fight very, very, very viciously. New England Treatment Access is the best place to look. They fired 53 people at the Brookline Dispensary. They were vicious at the Franklin Grow. And it took a very, very long time for the union to get a contract there. And by the time we actually got a contract, a majority of the employees who were there at the beginning of the union struggle were gone. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is just a higher turnover in the cannabis industry since it's a new industry. Um, So if you have a two, three year long labor battle, uh, which is pretty common when there's no labor peace agreements in place, uh, by the time everything's said and done, very few of the original crew are still going to be around. And that in and of itself has a discouraging effect on organizing because folks kind of sit around and ask, well, what was the point of it if, uh, you know, we were all gone by the time the contract was voted through anyway. Now, the second bit of that, and this relates to a social equity issue is why labor peace agreements are important, is that um, about, I think it was three years ago, the National Labor Relations Board, um, in a case out in Illinois due to Cresco Labs, um, decided that cannabis cultivators and anybody in a cannabis grow who is directly plant touching are agriculture workers. And the reason why this is significant is because agriculture workers are specifically exempted from the national labor relations act which is essentially the you know the bill of rights the founding document of american labor law so if you're in a state that doesn't have its own ag law as they call it on the books such as california where a separate state process has been set up for agriculture workers to organize you can't go to the National Labor Relations Board and have a union election for cultivators. So labor peace agreements are essentially a way around that because it allows the union to dictate the bargaining unit, i.e. who is going to be included in the union and in negotiations. And I, I think it's it's worth pointing out that in states that don't have mandatory labor peace agreements, to my knowledge, there has not been a single cultivation facility organized in Illinois which I think we all know is the home of the MSOs, right? I mean, they control that state like none other, and quite a few of them are headquartered out of there. And there hasn't been any cultivation organizing since that Cresco Labs decision because there's no labor peace agreements on the book. And as far as exerting power for workers and being able to get them a seat at the table, um, these companies are most vulnerable at the gross. As far as where in the supply chain do you want to hit them? It's at the cultivation. And if those workers don't have any rights, um, and when the labor peace agreement is essentially a substitute for that, um, you know, that's going to create all sorts of problems for product quality, for public health, et cetera, uh, because you know, as a part of that, they have no whistleblower rights typically. So I, I think in, in, a, in a long way that that's sort of a, an answer to, to the question of labor peace and why it's important in cannabis.
1: That's Aiden Coffee. He's uh, an organizer with UFCW. They're an international labor union um going back to a couple of things that you said um that, uh, chris you you mentioned that ufc is like pretty much the only cannabis labor union but i have seen recently number one teamsters starting to get involved that they, they, that was in the news recently are there other unions besides ufcw and teamsters even aiden
3: um, not to our knowledge, as far as, uh, you know, large labor unions with a lot of resources that are actively trying to represent workers in the cannabis industry. Um, you know, all organizing is good organizing. Always believe that workers are better off when they're represented and they have advocacy. Um, but as far as who's been doing this cannabis stuff the longest, it's certainly the UFCW. And to add to that, you know, beyond just the organizing element of it, we're the only ones active on the public policy side, including in states that don't either have a program yet um, or, you know, the program is very young. So, you know, we're active in the Mississippi medical program. Uh, We're pushing for medical in Indiana. Um, So, you know, we're, we're committed not just to the workers, but, you know, the whole cannabis movement and the end of prohibition in general.
1: And uh, I'll also note, too, Massachusetts does have special rules for agriculture, and that's why so many of the cultivation sites have actually been organized by you guys. You know, unlike retail, like you've had actually a lot more success with, with organizing agriculture, I would say, than retail in Massachusetts. Is that correct, Aiden, as well?
3: Yeah. So Massachusetts is one of a handful of states that have, um, you know, a separate state process for agriculture workers to organize. As you can imagine, in most states, there's a lot of resistance to that from, uh, you know, big farm industries and big agriculture. Um, But Massachusetts has it and you know it has enabled us to organize cultivators and i think the other thing that's significant about it too is that if a company interferes with the rights of cultivators in massachusetts to organize and the union presses unfair labor practice charges against them those unfair labor practice charges are adjudicated by the uh, state labor board the public employees labor board here in massachusetts And that has a lot more power and a lot more jurisdiction within Massachusetts and is generally seen to be a lot more labor friendly than the National Labor Relations Board, whose, you know, I mean, um, their judgments are generally retroactive, right? So if a union is fired for organizing, um, you know, they they fall through the NLRB practice with unfair labor practice charges, you can get them back to work and with back pay, but it's going to take a while. Um, Whereas at the state process, it moves a lot quicker and um, you know, workers um, workers can feel more secure in that. So I think that's really helped us out.
1: Awesome. Chris, do you wanna to respond to any of that or do you wanna let Shaleen maybe give a response? What do you wanna do?
0: I mean, Chalene, I, for the regulators here have required these uh, labor peace agreements. From my perspective as a consumer, Aiden, I hear all that you say, but from my consumer perspective, when you say, oh my gosh, when the price goes down, that may mean that the employees don't get a discount. I'm like, well, whatever. I mean, it's $70 an eighth. It's got to come down to be affordable. I have to. So that's what we have to balance as consumers. Like, how do we as consumers pay a fair price that we can afford while supporting a socially equitable industry? At $60 an eighth, I can't even support the socially equitable industry. I can only support my local legacy provider. But, I mean, we were talking about labor peace agreements. To me, again, if UFCW is the only union around, workers only can go to UFCW. They, UFCW is going to offer their labor peace agreement. Workers don't have much choice. I think that union organizing is a great thing. But if unions, if workers can only choose one union.
1: Well, there is another one. We said Teamsters. So well, there is in, two now. I mean, UFC, I know like, they're not as heavily true. involved, but. But, That's yeah. true,
0: but I, for example, in New Jersey, UFCW is the only choice for unionization okay. at the uh, at these places. So, like the workers here only have UFCW to turn to. Not that Hugh at Hugh Giordano is the organizer here for UFCW. He's, He's a great guy. We love you. We love you. we love you. I love you. But to the same extent, I feel like you know, again, in the history of labor organizing, which I I used to be a public radio producer, and I used to have a lot of labor leaders on yeah, my you, show. Yep. One of the things about having only one union in a town that represents an industry is that when workers don't have a choice, that union can't, it, that's not a good dynamic for workers, let me put it that way. So I, that's what I would like to see out there. But as far as, re, that's my problem now, from a regulatory standpoint, when you require labor peace agreements and there's only one union in town, is this a good dynamic for the
3: So, um, sorry, I just started downpouring out here, but, um... I I under I understand your point about the, uh, you know, uh, how it could perhaps limit workers. But just to walk back to something, I think that uh, it's important to note that, you know, as far as the pricing is concerned, there is a Goldilocks zone. Right. I mean, if it's five dollars an eighth then the workers aren't making any money. The companies aren't making any money. You don't have a healthy industry. If it's $70 an eighth, yeah, absolutely. That's highway robbery, right? So, you know, our goal is to find some place in the middle where, you know, it is affordable and it brings folks into the market that weren't there before because you're right, there's only a select few people who will pay that $70 an eighth. But that... Um, you know, allows these companies to have healthy margins and then allows us to negotiate healthy contracts with them. I mean, you know, we've seen that we saw this in Oregon when we we had a lot of medical shops and a couple of adult-use shops organized in Oregon when that transition happened. And when the bottom fell out of the market and it was, you know, $5 eighths in Portland, um, those folks couldn't stay afloat. So um, that's our kind of our, I think, our position on that. Now, as far as the labor peace agreements, I mean... You know, I I understand from a philosophical point where you're coming from, but just, you know, having done this for four or five years and having done it both ways, having done it the labor peace agreement way where it's essentially mutual disarmament and, you know, the union can't pick it, but the company can't union bust. And then doing it the old fashioned way here in Massachusetts, where, I mean, it's a real Duke Nukem kind of brawl. um, And I'll tell you, it's a lot, lot, lot more reliable to go the labor peace agreement path just because of the nature of the industry. Um, you'll get a contract a lot quicker and, you know, maybe that contract isn't quite as good. Maybe instead of getting a $2.50 raise, you get a $2 raise. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think if you if you brought the workers in and asked them, hey, do you want a $2 raise in six months, a year? Um, or do you want a $2.50 raise after two or three years of blood, sweat and tears in which 90 percent of you and your coworkers are going to be fired by management? Um, I think it's an easy choice for a lot of them.
1: Shaleen, do you want to add to that? Anything on this as well? Labor peace agreements?
2: Um, I mean, through my superficial broad strokes level of understanding, I think labor peace agreements are generally a good thing. I definitely see why jurisdictions, especially on the West Coast, uh, require them. Um, I'm thinking about the theme that Chris raised earlier when he said if we can figure out price gouging with cannabis, perhaps we can figure it out everywhere. And that reminds me of the CAOA, uh, the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, um, that, so if people don't know, that's a recent bill introduced by uh, Schumer, Wyden, and Booker. Um, It has, I believe, some pretty extraordinary labor protections in the sense that if a company that is a marijuana licensee violates uh, labor rights, they can lose their license, which I believe goes further than any other industry. Aiden, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But I think that is an excellent example of how we can use federal policy to further um, our values. And if it works, we can see we can know that we can demand it for other industries as well.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Chalene. And, you know, I'm um, pretty certain that our uh, legislative and political affairs department have been very active on that. You know, e- even aside from the labor protections angle, uh, we've always been advocates for safe banking um, because that is an issue, of, you know, that comes, uh, you know, for safety for the workers. Right. I mean, it's going to it's going to help with uh, reducing robberies and make it easier for our workers and our members to, uh, you know, to open bank accounts, to secure loans, all that good stuff. Um and I think the other thing is if we we got to think long term in this industry, you know, it's going to be here for the rest of forever. And as a rule of thumb, labor peace agreements only prevent strikes or picketing in the first contract. So, you know, and when it comes up for renegotiation in three years, Chris, if the company is not making a fair offer to the workers, the union can absolutely take those workers out on strike. Good well, points.
0: that's I, I, I mean, I. Again, that's interesting. I think Shalene also too. When you talk about um, when you talk about the uh, the new federal legislation and having it have more teeth, I think that's what Booker and Schumer are bringing to the table here, as uh, as opposed to previous proposals. Um, yeah. When you talk about the Ship Act too, you know, one big question I had about that um, when you talk about shipping directly, I would love to have craft made marijuana shipped to my door here in New Jersey. I yeah. broke my leg oh a couple months ago all I want is marijuana shipped to my My door
1: dream. Right that is my dream. Yeah, yeah. Now you're Amazing. talking Christmas. Yes. Have it delivered to me. I don't have to drive up there are you with a me? couple
0: of lobsters. I'd be all set, oh, but um, oh. it, it would be, but for the ship act, who is the person or what entity is going to determine which craft cultivators are able to participate in that? Like what kind of test or certificate or whatever, what are they going to have to do to be able to start shipping?
2: So it's specifically by size. Um, So it would be pretty straightforward to determine the size. I think it's 22,000 square feet outdoor, um, 5,000 indoor, excuse me, the reverse. Um, But the tricky part is uh, how do you control the ownership, right? What's to stop me if I own an MSL from, you know, having my sister open a small uh, craft cultivator and take advantage of that. So that's where we can, I've written whole papers on this, but you can also look to Massachusetts to see the way that we um, determine ownership and control. It takes a lot of investment. So I think that is you know, one of the issues, one of many that is baked into the SHIP Act where it would need to be addressed, but we're not starting from scratch because we've run into these issues uh, in states before. I wanted to mention safe banking. Uh, I just didn't want to let too much time pass. Um, I have to say I I disagree with you, Aiden. I don't think that safe banking would reduce robberies. I think there's actually a whole marketing plan for the bill that doesn't match what it would actually do, which is just protect banks and not require them to service cannabis or be equitable or anything. But the good news is... um, I am part of the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition, and we have put together a number of amendments that are available in a paper. Um, and those would actually uh, modestly change Safe Banking so that we, it would in fact um, be equitable and, and match its marketing plan. So I invite you and anyone else who supports Safe uh, to check out those amendments.
3: Thank would you, Shlaine, I
1: definitely will. Would that stuff also help uh, answer, like ancillary business like even us, like we, we, we get issues with Stripe. Like it's ridiculous. Like cannabis media, we, we even have issues collect like getting money because they think every dollar we get is from a dispensary or or, or illegal or something. And it's yeah. like it's coming from my friends. It's not like it's like five bucks, you know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, I run into well, that as well. I will think that help us everybody's guess as to whether safe would help that or not, because it's really about the perception of the risk by banks. It's not a legal prohibition on them. It's their decision. So my guess is a really big, you know, Visa, Mastercard, Stripe, PayPal. I don't think that it would safe would change their uh, actions because you're still working with a federally illegal product. But it still may, you know, increase the the level of banking generally. You know, it, it may just there, there's some finite number of banks that will. Uh, probably decide to go from not servicing at any cannabis businesses at all to some. But the point is when you increase access to banking, that is not necessarily making it equitable. They may just offer more products and services at cheaper prices to bigger companies that they see as more credit. Who,
0: who are they does... already working
2: with? I mean, you know, all those companies, you know, you, they these, got banks. in New Jersey yeah. and
0: Pennsylvania and Delaware, we're talking about the MSOs again, they have banking here. Um, they they had to have, in order to apply for a permit in Pennsylvania, Yeah, they had to have a bank account. Yeah, you had to have $2 million liquid capital in a
1: bank in, a in
0: Pennsylvania. That so, was
1: actually a problem at the beginning of Massachusetts. Someone, sure. like one of the bank, it was, she'll even remember that. I do remember that. It's actually, crazy. real
2: quick anecdote. Um, some of you who watch the commission meetings might remember that we created these, you um, Cash counters around Massachusetts, physical cash counters, because everyone was saying there's going to be all these piles of cash because these businesses can't use banks. So we created cash counters because we wanted to be able to collect the tax revenue. Um, I did a public records request when I was writing this paper a couple months ago. Anybody want to guess how much those cash counters have collected in cash from the cannabis businesses? Not a penny. They've no. never collected a penny. It's all been electronic because they all have bank accounts.
0: No way, really? That's awesome. I mean that Shalenen, that's an awesome data point right there. Um, because again, I mean that is one of the main I've been looking for that. I mean when when even when you go into a medical or adult use dispensary, you just don't see many consumers using cash anymore. Um, every one of them has a bank or they have a, a pay for ATM. I pay with
1: cash and they look at me like I'm crazy sometimes. <laughs> some of these places, I'm like, I'm like, wait, everyone's not like I, I think they're even doing the tap thing. Like, I, I don't use any of that stuff. Like, it's <laughs> well, funny. I mean,
0: uh, I, again, though, that's a great data point, um, for how the industry actually works. Uh, I think, I mean, I have friends who run food trucks at the end of the night, they're sitting on 35 large, uh, in their food truck. Um, And there's no plan to help out the food truck operators uh, with their cash business. But the the marijuana industry really has had banking um, already. When we talk about the Safe Banking Act, Aiden, you know, for a lot of activists like me who've seen this for many years, I see the Safe Banking Act as just, uh, you know, a blessing for existing financial relationships. I don't ever see the Safe Banking Act ever reaching down to a small business here in New Jersey. What we have lobbied for in New Jersey is for the Economic Development Authority of New Jersey to give out small business loans to the cannabis sector, because that's the only way we're going to get some money. Out. Um, I think that's the only way really um, banks are never, as Shaleen absolutely correctly noted, even if you pass safe banking, the, the risk um, assessment by banks for any small business, let alone a cannabis small, go try and start a bakery today, Aiden, you know, get a get a big loan for that. Small businesses are seen as high risk. Cannabis small businesses will not get a business loan because of safe banking, but they will get a business loan from the state economic development authority, and that's a completely different uh, revenue stream available to that you know whole sector.
3: Now I might have gotten my federal bills mixed up. Does safe banking also entail uh, include 280e reform? No. Is that the More Act?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, the MORE Act, CAOA, the, uh, the State's Reform Act, any of them that would deschedule cannabis would, by extension, 280 uh, would no longer apply.
3: Okay,
1: gotcha. Since 280 uh, is about taxation, federal code, because it's still illegal, doesn't allow any and- write-offs for dispensaries. So they're paying their full taxation on revenue. Um, I have a question about, like, state tax. Well, in- Well, you want to correct me? Go ahead, Chris. No, 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 no.
0: 280E, I was going to say, one of the things you were probably going to, hopefully you're going to note, that a lot of states have filled in the gap where 280E has, uh, this whole argument over 280E and the IRS tax code has become messed up small businesses especially. Um, What New Jersey has done is for the small businesses and for the uh, social equity applicants that have applied, they will be able to write off all those things that you have in 280E on their state taxes. So they're not going to get it off off their federal taxes, which is still a little bit of a problem, problematic for these businesses anyway, but they will be able to write it all off their state taxes and they'll get the same kind of return. So that's states wh- are filling the gap I on going. 280E.
1: I, yeah. I, I mean, that's good, that's if, the good if, news if, on 280E. If, because other states like Massachusetts, I don't believe has that. And even going beyond the taxation issue, uh, beyond the 280E taxation issue, I feel like the Massachusetts tax is too high. I feel like we voted on something. The governor and the uh, Speaker of the House and the legislator, they immediately raised the tax on what we voted for. I feel like uh, they changed the law recently. They kind of lowered or set a limit on the local tax. But the state is getting the full revenue. Uh, should we look at lowering taxation on state level, too, uh, in terms of what the taxpayer pays, you know, the consumer, I guess, what they're you know paying but also like this 280E, should we be doing that on uh, what New Jersey is doing for the local businesses in Massachusetts as well?
2: Actually, um, I don't think this got reported on widely because it happened like during the amendment making process, but actually the bill that Massachusetts just passed did include a state level um, exception similar to what Chris is, is mentioning, but I don't think it was just small businesses. I think it was all cannabis businesses and I'm not sure you know, how significant, if you just do it at the state level, um, I'm not sure that how significant that benefit is, but it's, it's certainly something. something and it's a good gesture. As to whether our tax is too high, maybe. I mean, 20% is, is, is quite a bit. <laughs> I don't know, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, 15% is what they just proposed, the governor and speaker for sports betting, which I think is far more harmful I mean, we're talking about harm predict, you know, harm reduction. 15% for sports gambling, but 20% for cannabis just doesn't make sense to me. I don't think uh, alcohol is paying 20%. I don't think even cigarettes is paying 20%. What do you guys think?
3: I think reducing the tax is a good idea if there are conditions attached to it. So uh, California pretty recently did that. They, um, They lowered the tax, but only for companies that meet certain thresholds as far as paying a living wage to their workers, offering benefits of a certain caliber. And you can justify that pretty easily to legislators and policymakers by saying, look, you've got all these companies that are paying their workers horrible wages and they're on the social safety net, right? They're on SNAP. They're on state, state Medicare, all of that. If these employ, if these companies raise their wages so that folks are self-sufficient, you know, you're actually going to get ahead, even with the with the reduced tax revenue that you're going to have coming into the state. um, Because, you know, these these companies aren't double dipping anymore the way Walmart does. So I I I I think yeah I
1: love under that. the love right condition state I love that for the state I love that for the workers I love it for good consumers like we feel better about shopping like <clears> that, <throat> that is like win
2: win win that's brilliant is is something like that currently in place Aiden, anywhere
3: in cali yeah they just did it out there um I think it's uh I think it's passed by the legislature and signed into law I'd have to uh um double check the name of the bill but um you know I think that's definitely something that we should consider here in the Commonwealth.
1: Chris, what do you think, Mr. Consumer?
0: Uh, Yeah, 15 and 20 percent. It's way too high. Um, Consumers, absolutely. I remember the first time I bought uh, legal adult use in Colorado and I had sticker shock after shopping. I was like, oh, my God, like the tax was so much. And I was like, oh, man, I way overspent. And you don't want people you don't want consumers walking out with sticker shock. You do want it to be affordable. But I have to say, New Jersey is experiencing the other way. Um, The industry lobbied for a different tax structure here in New Jersey. In fact, Um, Some of the uh, new adult use dispensaries that are MSO corporate owned, they opened in economic development zones in New Jersey that have half the sales tax. So they were able to charge half the sales tax on the cannabis um, because of their location and because of the way their permit was issued. That was kind of gaming the system, in my opinion, because part of the return on investment for legalizing cannabis is getting some of this tax money going back to communities. Um, this was very carefully done in New Jersey, where the tax revenue for cannabis is going back to specific, you know, zones in the state. But if they're gaming the system and they're not even collecting the sales tax and they're collecting half of 7 percent, we're not even getting a return on that. So at $60 an eighth, how much tax comes back to New Jersey residents? That's the question. And we're looking at three or four percent. So Massachusetts, it's too high at 20 percent. In New Jersey, it's too low if the actual tax return is only 3% on the $60 eighth in one of those zones. So again, it's just like the price. And I would argue, Aiden, that if the price dropped to $5 an eighth, it would you'd see just as much revenue coming in because you'd be selling a heck of a lot more of it. And I The agree problem that, of a $60 yep. eighth, yeah, yep. the volume of sales is so limited at $60 yep. an eighth, it's
1: Ludicrous, people, yeah. In Massachusetts, people would not drive to Maine. They wouldn't be going to the street. They'd go to the store. If they well, can afford I, it, they I, would go to again, the store. The the question
0: for the industry is how much of the market of consumers are you actually capturing? Is is Are consumers shopping the legal market? If you're going to take me as an example, again, I've been an advocate of legalization, taxation, and regulations for 25 years. And I have not bought a single gram of adult-use cannabis in New Jersey. Since April, I bought all my weed underground, no tax from my local people, my local woman, actually. So, um, you know, here's the thing. If you can't get a consumer like me in the market, how much of the market are you capturing? The $60 eighth is a hyperinflated value that isn't returning a tax investment, and it's not even returning back to the companies that make it. When it comes to a small business model, I think it's a fiction that a small business can exist in this environment. At Trying to sell a $60 eighth following all the regulations. We're finding that out in New Jersey real fast. So, I, you know, from my perspective as a consumer, it's weird. You know, I can get quality weed for a good price, but it's not from a dispenser. When will that happen? That's the question. The industry is pricing me out of it. Regulators are pricing me out of it. And I'm not alone. I'm one of millions of Americans. So, That's you know, it's, four- it's getting further and further apart, it seems.
1: I'm going to say four years from now. That's, that's when you're going to be happy, Chris. That's how long it's going to take. Uh, no. Can you wait Look, for you? Chris is going to no, be yelling for you. Think you. I think that's right.
0: You. Because you told me that with medical marijuana 10 years ago, Mike. They said, oh, just wait, Chris. As soon as we get some more permits out, the price will come down. And the truth is, 10 years later, these same stinking operators got the same stinking prices out of the same places.
1: There you go. And uh, we have a comment from Kim Napoli. She wrote, if the uh, 20% tax must stay, redirect those funds to dedicated support for communities and infrastructure that needs it um, and allow adult use retailers to offer discounts. I would love to see that Kim Napoli.
2: Uh, What do you guys think about
1: that? So shout out to
2: Kim Napoli, by the way, if you don't know, she is the chair of the Cannabis Advisory Board Market Participation subcommittee, which is a volunteer position that she's been doing for longer than any of the commissioners have been in office. So pay attention to Kim. Yes, she's absolutely right. We should have said that before, like how high the taxes is also relevant to where are those taxes going. And luckily in Massachusetts, 15% now goes to a trust fund that will fund loans for social equity and economic empowerment applicants. So that's a if, if we're going to be collecting that much tax, it's great to see a lot of it going to a good and necessary cause.
1: And and what about, uh, in Massachusetts right now, they allow no discounts for adult use. They allow discounting for medical but not adult use. I'm, I'm, assuming, uh, I'm assuming you support that as well. Shalene. I do. Does everyone uh, support that? What I'm
2: agnostic on it, personally.
1: You are. What about Aiden and Chris?
2: No discounts. You I
0: mean, like, I, I okay, so like one yeah. of the things I think that should happen is if no you have sales. a record for marijuana, you shouldn't pay any tax, that should be a discount. It should be a tax <laughs> and <laughs> for prisoners and, and victims of the drug war. You and I How should get that? free weed. Part, down yeah, down. Point, okay, I support that. Okay, we should get there. How about I'm four down. years from now? Do I get free weed and no tax four years from now? I mean, heck, I just want like a $25 quarter. Okay, I want a hundred dollar. That's all I you're want.
1: gonna be like 60, but it's coming.
3: I mean,
0: I think there's a lot of. How
1: old you are, but I'm just saying you're gonna be older.
3: (laughs) I mean, you still can't buy more than five milligram gummies on the adult use side here, right? In Massachusetts, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of little things like the discounts, the five milligram rule. That I mean, you know, come on, the the market's here. It's get it's been here, and it's you know, I think we can we can change those things though.
2: Just the adult use, to be clear, in the medical market
1: you can have it um, with hire. Yes. got it. And uh, we do have like a number of things that Cannabis Control Commission, I'm sure, is going to be looking at over the next session. Uh, what do you think, Chelene What are some of the things that we might expect or see people wanting to see happen, anything?
2: Um, so if you are like me, a typical like consumer of the... <laughs> policy in Massachusetts, you've probably been kind of asleep for a year because they haven't done a lot of policy making. Um, it is time to wake up because they are going to be doing a ton of changes. Um, the two driver rule for delivery is a big one. Um, The new law, this doesn't get talked about enough. The new law essentially puts the commission in charge of completely rewriting the municipal process to make it more equitable. So if they actually have to do like what Cambridge and other cities are doing where they are really issuing the licenses to equity, small black owned businesses, um, that's gonna make a massive difference. Um, Or I mean, they could just require like a bulletin board, you know, or some BS. So we have to like watch the commission really carefully. Um, Social consumption is going to be redone, I would imagine in the next year. So watch the meetings, pay attention, watch this show, um, participate in testimony. It makes a huge difference. Um, And Mike, can I complain about the new chair for a moment, if you don't mind?
1: Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay.
2: So a new chair was appointed a couple weeks ago. Her name is Shannon O'Brien. She was a former treasurer for the state of Massachusetts and uh, very much a, a politico, I think is the word, a real government insider. And um, I have concerns about it. I spoke out immediately when it was announced because I thought it was someone that knew a lot about government and didn't know anything about cannabis, which would be problematic you know, in its own right. But then it came out that um, Chairman O'Brien had been consulting for a couple uh, tier 11, I think, companies, so 100,000 square feet um, that were run by a former state rep, right, and also held a license herself. Um, and as far as I know, you know, has not been a part of the equity conversation, um, maybe behind the scenes was pushing for this bill, but you know, that has not been public or discussed publicly. So I have some concerns, you know, and I'm not just trying to be mean, you know, it's not like this is a private individual. This is a person who I would say second after Sean Collins is going to have the biggest influence on how this law plays out, you know, and all of these important, um policies that the commission is in charge of so are they just going to be saying the right things about equity which you know she's already done are they going to actually be bold and take risks right now a lot of that depends on how much attention the public pays and how much the public demands of them so if you're the public watch the commission and demand equity if that's what you want
1: i thought it was interesting that she got selected a treasurer Picked a former treasurer to be the chair. That's just like tells you all about what you need to know about Massachusetts. I guess it's a, uh, it's a club, it's a club. Um, it. Uh, I also said when that got announced, we, we were talking, Shalene. I said hack-a-rama. That Was my first comment on it. Was it hackerrama? I, I and I don't have anything negative to say about Shannon O'Brien, but I just think it's uh, it's it's a hackerama That's what it is.
2: Someone else said it reeks of cronyism. That
1: that was accurate. There, there you go. Got some it's other also, comments from Kim. Uh, I, mean, I want to read. Oh
2: yeah.
1: Kim Napoli wrote uh, writes CCC needs to remove the requirement of vertical integration for medical, extend all benefits of the equity program to the medical side, and add an exclusivity period on the newly issued medical licenses. I agree 100 on that. What do you think, Shalene, and our panel? agree. And I think, Chris, you had something you want to say?
0: Well, on that comment, I mean, I I think that Kim is absolutely right. What we saw in New Jersey is that the uh, medical operators were given a flip the switch option to become the first adult use operators, and they were selling adult use and medical cannabis parallel. In fact, the very same strains. So we've seen the price go up for patients, access go down for patients. And um, as prices go up for adult use, I don't think it's a good plan. So I think that she's spot on. What we've seen in New Jersey is that the flip the switch plan of trying to have uh, medical dispensaries serve patients and then be the first uh, market to adult use doesn't really work. Um, You know, um, what I was going to say, I I think, you know, I, I think we've covered a lot in the ground in this conversation. And it's really interesting to hear about the inside baseball up there in Massachusetts. What I'm concerned about, what we don't have, we're lucky in New Jersey. Our New Jersey Cannabis Commission doesn't have anybody who's obviously associated with the industry. I think that that's rare now. I think that we're like the only cannabis commission that doesn't have anybody associated directly with the industry in an executive or on the board. When we looked at New Mexico, when they formed their cannabis commission, somebody who was working at a vice president at Columbia Care is now the you know head of the New Mexico Cannabis Commission. In Virginia, we saw industry reps uh, be a part of it. Every state, like New Jersey, doesn't have anybody part of, part of the Cannabis Commission, but they have to work with the Trade Commission, with um, the Trade Association, which have become very powerful groups. The state trade associations of mar- medical marijuana and adult use cannabis have become very powerful lobbies. And that's turned into uh, federal policy with the U.S. Cannabis Council. I'm sure Shalene's very, uh, not, not maybe the biggest fan of the U.S. Cannabis Council. But these trade associations are huge, and um, they've exerted a tremendous – when Shaleen when talked earlier about what's happening behind the scenes federally, that's who comes to mind. Trade associations, U.S. Cannabis Council. And we've seen um, they they're placing, they're placing regulators in key positions. That's what I saw about New Mexico. That's what it kind of sounds like in Massachusetts. I mean, I don't know who these players are, but when you've got somebody from the industry in a regulatory position, there should be a rule against that. I'm surprised that there aren't rules preventing this, but in New Jersey and Massachusetts, there's not necessarily a rule that says, um, if you're in the industry, you can't be a cannabis commission, which I think right. is. Good.
2: Well, to be clear, there are quite a few rules, like you couldn't oh. have an interest, you know, and then nah. vote on that. Um, but still, I mean, I think, and again, nothing against Chairman O'Brien. I think that if you have spent, um, your, you know, political expertise to help something that's run by a former state rep. And to be clear, there's no indication that it's a connection to an MSO, if these are local companies. But nonetheless, if you have, why would you choose, right, to help a former state rep and not help an equity applicant? You know, I think that says something and it does raise some some concerns. Oh, also, um, there are very strict requirements in terms of statements of financial interest that you have to file every year if you're a commissioner. So any member of the public can examine that, you know, and, and raise any concerns that they have. So there are certainly rules, to be clear. I don't want to suggest that there aren't.
0: Well, yeah. And even in New Mexico, there, there are some of those rules in place, like that Columbia Care VP. She absolutely stepped down with enough timing to fit in with all the rules. No problem. Didn't break any of the paper rules. But having people from the industry in these regulatory positions, I mean, you know, they I think there's a legal term. It's not just about a conflict of interest. It's about creating the appearance of a conflict of interest. And that comes into play in political positions much more so than business positions. But cannabis commissions are both. They're political slash business (laughs) things. And so I think that they really have to be held up to the highest integrity. I think when consumers see people from the industry on a cannabis commission, it's like, you know, it just seems like the jig is up.
1: Uh, speaking of being up, I, our time is up. We're over time. So I want to thank you all for being here. I guess I want to give you each like a last moment to share whatever you want with the world, maybe how people can contact you, anything you want them to know, just what your final thoughts? Who wants to go first? Aiden, I haven't heard you from you in a while, so let's go with Aiden.
3: Sure. So, um, USCW fourteen forty five here in Massachusetts is working on something novel that I don't think it's been done in the cannabis industry before, and that is a cannabis workers' bill of rights something that can be you know first kind of developed conceptually drawing from the community from cannabis workers and then i think down the line something that we hope to uh to get into statute there's precedent for this in other industries meat packing workers and packing house workers have a bill of rights there's a lot of activists in connecticut and i believe also in your neck of the woods in new jersey chris that are pushing for a domestic workers bill of rights and we think as a similarly vulnerable population who's labor rights are not necessarily enshrined in federal law that cannabis workers deserve the same so uh we've set up a hotline and uh, we got a gmail cannabis workers bill of rights at gmail.com if you are a cannabis worker patient activist or consumer out there who has some ideas on what ought to be included in the cannabis workers bill of rights everything from you know uh safe safe you know safety issues to economics to to whatever uh we'd love to hear your thoughts
1: thank you aiden and so people could contact you directly, UFCW1445?
3: Yeah, uh, it'll be on the website. It'll be on our social media. Or I think it's uh, pretty easy to remember, just Cannabis Workers Bill of rights at gmail.com. If you just want to shoot us a note and feel free to do so anonymously as well.
1: Thank you for saying that, Gmail. Thank you. Uh, Shaleen, what do you have for um, us?
2: Thank you, Mike, for putting this together. Um, Thank you, Chris. I always enjoy hearing you talk about price gouging and price fixing. And I always imagine when you talk about trade associations that they're probably just about to engage in price fixing and then they see you (laughs) and they're like, that guy's gonna not let this happen. Um, Aiden, I learned a ton from you today. Uh, Really excited about that California bill. I learned all about labor peace agreements. Um, So thank you and thank you to your organization for the excellent work that you do on federal policy. I wanna close by talking about um, interstate commerce quickly. So um, I think there's a false binary when people think about interstate commerce, they think about um, just flipping a switch. Is there gonna be no interstate commerce or yes? I think that is the wrong way to think about it. If we flip a switch and allow interstate commerce, we're gonna immediately have Amazon, etc., Um, put everyone out of business. If we gradually, no, if we, sorry, if we if we delay it, without doing anything else, we're just going to allow the MSOs that have current oligopolies at the state level to continue it, you know, for like up to another 10 years. And we may not be able to reverse that. So that's a terrible uh, choice. Do we want to do a giveaway for Big Tobacco and Amazon or to the MSOs? Those are both terrible ideas. What we should do instead, and this is well within Congress's authority, is develop a transition plan for interstate commerce. And you've heard all kinds of innovative ideas from all of the guests today, all these different elements that we could do for workers, for consumers, for small businesses. Congress could build whatever they wanted when it comes to interstate commerce. The most simple one is they could allow small businesses to engage in interstate commerce first or social equity. But there's a million other things that we could do. So I really encourage you think about that. Um, and that's the thing that we think about most at Parabola Center. So come see us. We'll be at Boston Cannabis Week Friday and Saturday. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Parabola Center and check out all of our resources at ParabolaCenter.com.
1: Thank you, Shaleen Title. Chris, what do you have for us? Final thoughts?
0: Well, this has been awesome. Guys, I broke my leg. This is like the first appearance I've done since I broke my leg eight weeks ago. It's great to see you, Shaleen. Thank you so much. Everything the Parabola Center is doing, I'm following. And I want to let you know, so many people are. Um, It's really a bright light out there for consumers and activists uh, out there today who are working on policy. So many nonprofits and other organizations have um, not dug in their heels in this very important policy time. They've gotten a little uh, lazy, I think, is the best, nicest way I could put it. But that's why it's great to see what you're doing. Aiden, it's great to meet you, too. And, um, you know, again, I've known Hugh for a while down here. UFCW is doing great work. I just wish there were more, you guys could teach more unions so that there was a little competition for you guys. So um, as far as, you know, New Jersey, what I'm doing right now, I'm doing data research showing that in Pennsylvania, where we still have marijuana possession arrests, it's mostly happening in Republican counties and Republicans are against marijuana legalization. So they're arresting their own voters for it in Pennsylvania, which is hilarious. Um, and um, the, in New Jersey, we're of course, working on the strange thing. We've legalized everything about marijuana except growing it at home. So that's what I'm really, I've, especially since I broke my leg, I could have been, had a whole garden up by now in the last eight weeks. So I'm working on home cultivation here in New Jersey. I, I want people to keep that in mind As we talk about corporate cannabis in America, that, to me, is the easiest option to combat price gouging and to give consumers a little bit more choice in their life. We need the ability to grow at home, and it needs to be as common as having a vegetable garden. It shouldn't be taboo. It should be like Barcelona. You walk down, you're in New Jersey, look, on the balcony, there's some cannabis. That's what I would like to see. So thank you very much, Mike. You're awesome, and thank you for having me on the show tonight. I appreciate thank it.
1: Thank you so much, Chris Goldstein. I want to thank Shalene Title, former Cannabis Control Commissioner with Parabola Center now, Aiden Coffee from UFCW. I want to thank all our listeners, supporters. I want to thank people giving us reviews on the podcast apps out there. I started seeing some new ones. I was, like, all excited. Thank you. Uh really appreciate everyone who supports this show. Uh, we're the Young Jerks. We'll see you later. And, again, thank you for all the great guests tonight thank you Shalene, aiden and chris goldstein thank you take care everybody